Welcome to the Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the voice and sometimes technical producer, a guy who kind of helps this podcast out from time to time. And with me as always, the host of this podcast, the former all-star, the silver slugger, the golden glover. Ladies and gentlemen, Brett Boone. What up, Brett? Hi, Danny. How you doing? Well, we are now baseball free for a little while. The the World Series is done. The LA Dodgers are your 2020 champs with a 60-game regular season. What did you think? I thought it was a pretty good finish. Interesting decisions made. Uh, I think the Dodgers earned it. You know, I, I think they're the best team. And, uh, you know, L.A., big, big year for L.A. Lakers first, now Dodgers. That's true. And a lot of people are questioning a lot of different things that happened during this game, especially pulling guys out, bringing relievers in. And with us on today's podcast is probably one of the better relievers of all time, the seven-time All-Star, two-time Rolaids Relief Man Award winner, two-time NL Saves leader, and a 2018 Enshrined member of the Baseball Hall of Fame, ladies and gentlemen, Trevor Hoffman. What's up, Trevor? What's up, guys? Good to have you. Hoffman, good to have you. Boone on this side of the mic. A little different for you? A lot different, buddy. A lot of difference. (laughs) I I like it when you're playing second base behind me. Yeah, well, here we go. Here we go. We'll start it off. Uh, Dodgers, Jansen, having a tough time. Last two years, he's had a little bit of a rocky road. He's been a great closer for a lot, a long time. What's the most pressure you ever felt? Because the closer being such a unique, unique role in the game. What's the most pressure Hoffie ever felt out there on the baseball field? On the baseball field, I, I, I probably have to say the, the opportunities that I had to be a part of uh, trying to get into the postseason, like going after our divisions. And be honest with you, when, when, you got, when I got to the postseason, um, I felt more of a sense of relief. Like it, we got to where we want to get. Obviously, you want to win the whole thing, but I never felt the same type of pressures I did just trying to punch a ticket. So, uh, the, the grind through September's uh, when we were in it uh, were the times that uh, I felt the most pressure to try and uh, do my job. And honestly, when we got in the postseason, um, you're trying to do the same thing, but it, it just didn't seem like it was uh, as intense. Yeah. What's the difference? Great closer and a great setup man. What's the difference? Yeah, there's, there's really no safety net in that ninth inning, you know, the eighth inning, if it doesn't go well, your, your team has an opportunity to come back and have one more shot at the, at the plate. Um, if things don't go well for you in the ninth, uh, you lose the game and, you know, it, it reverberates all the way through, you know, the, the bullpen, the, the clubhouse, you, um, you've been in, you've been in many a clubhouse where the game hasn't finished the way you wanted. And it just, you, you kind of got it. You watch where you, you walk cause you don't, you're not sure what kind of mood somebody's going to be in or you know, disappointed they're going to be. And, you know, that hangs around for a little bit, but uh, you know, when you have the game in, in hand and you, it gets, it slips away, you know, it affects, it affects more than just that person that didn't do his job saving the game out. It's uh, you know, the, the, the team's bummed out. Like we were that we had a win, we let it get away and uh, you feel responsible um, for everyone's effort that was put in from the starting pitcher to the middle relief guys, the guys that got big hits and made great plays um, to all see it go away because um, you weren't able to do your job sucks. Okay. And, and 
And uh, when, when I think of Hoffy, you know, outside of, of us knowing each other and our families know each other for years and years, uh, you know, when I when I strictly when I focus in on Trevor Hoffman, the pitcher, Trevor Hoffman, the closer, it's always it. And with with most of the guys from our generation, uh, you know, Hoffy's known for for the changeup and a changeup that was kind of different than any other right-hander I ever faced. And, and the only the only comp I have to it is Tom Glavin on the left side through the same type. It, it wasn't the same changeup, but the same effect. It was one of those things as hitters, we'd wait and we'd wait, we'd wait, and, and it would never get there. I had the same thing with Tommy Glavin. I, felt, I, I faced a lot of great left-handers. Uh, with great changeups, but Tommy's was a little different. I think same goes for for yours, Trevor. On the on the right hand side, is man, a lot of people have great changeups, but but Hoffy's is just a little bit different, and it quite just never gets to home plate as much as we wait on it. How did you come up with this? Where did it come up? Where did you come up with it? Uh, just lead us into this. Yeah, it's a. Uh... I love that intro to it because honestly, you know, being able to, to trust throwing a right on right change up um, really had a lot of effect on how really I went, was able to attack hitters on both sides of the plate. And so, you know, Tommy, you know, maybe threw harder in the beginning of his career, um, similar to, you know, me at the beginning of my career, I had velocity where I, I lost the velocity and um, I was able to, you know, manipulate throwing strikes, you know, kind of with the change up um, to the point that I was able to get away with, you know, that, that de- definition of just kind of like, you don't want, you want to stay away from certain things on certain guys. And I said, the heck with it. You know, this is my out pitch. This is what I'm going to try and do. And, you know, being able to throw right on right was big for me because I didn't have, really have enough velocity towards the middle and end of my career to keep people honest. And so I try to utilize that, that lane, um, we'll say, to speed the guy up, even though I wasn't really speeding anything up with velocity. Um, the, the pitch came around. I, I used a regular circle change. Larry Barnett uh, Sr. was a guy that uh, was in the Reds organization a long, long time. I know you know him, Brett, and your, your, your dad knows him. Um, and he, I was actually signed by his son, Jeff Barton. He ran a camp in uh, Cypress Junior College in the offseason when I was trying to make a transition to pitching from hitting and showed me the circle change. And it was a, it was a nice pitch. I kind of took to it. I figured it out rather quick, but it didn't have this big differential that I was looking for. It was probably eight, nine miles an hour different. And when I had a teammate by the name of Donnie Elliott come along and show me his grip on what he was trying to do with the, the changeup for him, uh, it was kind of pinch the seam rather than have the circle around the horseshoe, pinch the seam. It, it kind of moved the ball into my hand into a, a more comfortable position, we'll say. And I got a few more miles an hour off of the pitch. And then I morphed it into more of a palm ball. And that's when I started to see some big differentials between my fastball and the changeup. I was, I was anywhere from 13 to 15, 17 mile an hour difference. And honestly, that that's, that's what made the pitch really, really good is, 
Um, you know, I, 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 I see guys today in the game with the quest tech or whatever you want to call it, the cube that they have to throw through and the umpire knows exactly where that strike zone's at and the hitters know exactly where that strike zone's at. And if it's not in that box, it's not getting called a strike. And I really feel like the changeup is a pitch that's underutilized out there because it can be a deceiving pitch in a sense that you don't pick up that front and back portion of the, the cube, you know, east and west, north and south, they're going to guys, guys are good enough where they're going to know what's going to be a strike. What's not that change up. It's just, it, it might not, like you said, Brad, it might not ever get there and they are thinking it's going to be in the strike zone. Well, I think you hit on a couple of real important things. It's really, in my opinion, not talked about enough. And that's a differentiant in, in the speed of pitches and also the right on right changeups. Now in today's game, you're seeing a lot more right on right changeups than, than back in say the nineties and the early two thousands. But I'll tell you the guys that give us hitters the most trouble are the guys that can knock off, like you said, 13 to 15 miles an hour. Cause we're programmed. If you've got a 94 mile an hour fastball, we're programmed for about an 84, 85 mile an hour off speed pitch. And we're used to that. When something goes off, you know, what we're expecting. Wow. As hitters, you, you, you know, you were a hitter once, but as hitters, we really panic of the unknown. So that's a big thing that I think is not talked about that much. And, and when it comes to also, when it comes to hitters and facing Trevor Hoffman, here's the one thing. And I, and I know me and you have talked about it a lot is, man, we don't want to be embarrassed. And we don't want you to screw us into the ground with that change up out front, miss it by two feet. That is our worst nightmare. And I think you were able to take advantage of that. Me and you have had a few battles over the years and almost like, it, you know, it sucks. I, and, and for the people out there listening on the Boone podcast, it sucks when your friends are pitchers, you don't want to be friends with them. Cause if, if I'm facing Trev, it's usually, it's usually the ninth inning. It's usually a big situation. And if he gets ahead of me in the count and even the slightest grin, I, I caught that. And I felt like he had an advantage over me. You know, he'll catch me sitting on that changeup and he dots me with a fastball away. The, the key to, and, and Trev, people don't know this either. A lot of your success was getting to the changeup, but getting to the changeup, you got to spot your fastball and you were pinpoint with that fastball. You know, you weren't throwing fastballs for effect for the most part. You were getting ahead with it, catching us sitting on a changeup. And I think that's what made you so effective. The overwhelming fear that especially right-handers had of getting embarrassed by that changeup. Speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, you hit the nail on the head. It, you know, having a devastating second pitch, um, unlike Mariano or his one pitch was devastating. Um, I needed to get ahead. It wasn't going to do me any good to be six, seven, eight pitches into an at-bat because then I got nothing to get someone out with. So I need to be aggressive in the strike zone early with my fastball. I need to put it where I, I, my best margin for error is going to be at, where I, more soft contact is going to be about it, and try and – get to 01, 02 as fast as I can so I can get to that changeup. Now, there's, there were guys out there that were sitting dead red the whole at-bat and never came off of it, and I didn't need to worry about that. I could flip up the changeup and I'd get the swing. But for the most part, it was dot the heater, get ahead, and then go to the pitch that looked like it, and then ultimately it wasn't. And, you know, I, again, I, I think guys I, 
the success would still be there with the changeup, even though if if guys took the changeup, and it, I know it's a, a big if, it probably wouldn't have been a strike. It would have been down in the dirt, but you're you're hoping and you're basing off of sight. And, you know, they do a great job of tunneling uh, guys today where they throw the same pitch out of the, you know, all their pitches out of the same arm slot. And then you see it like a firework. The guy's fastball goes here. The breaking ball goes here. And honestly, if, if the closer you can get it to the home plate that it decides to do something different, uh, the better you're going to be. And as you mentioned, you're geared up for 94 and you got, you're, you're geared up to be able to hit that person's secondary off speed pitch. Now, you're right. If it gets a little bit a bigger of a gap, which I, I tried to achieve, you're right. It's, it's something that you just, you got to pick one or the other. And sometimes you pick wrong and, um, you know, I'm never about trying to embarrass anybody. I was just trying to get outs, but yeah, as a hitter, I felt embarrassed half the time when I would swing and miss at a slider, let alone a, someone's really good changeup. So I don't know what would be worse. Like you, you, you swing and miss at a fastball that you hits the glove and you decide to swing or, you know, missing the change up by five feet by being early. Um, I, I think I'd rather break a bat and, and get a hit than, uh, than punch out on a change up. No, stop. That's why you quit hitting, because you don't have to go through the mental just <laughs> anguish that we go through. It's amazing as a hitter, and it doesn't matter if you're hot, you're not, you're hitting 330, you're hitting 230. In the ninth inning, because when you were out there, it was always, you know, you're usually got the lead, we're behind. So I'm telling you, the psyche of a hitter, when they swing and miss, I, I, I wish I wouldn't have had that psyche. Maybe if I just didn't care, it would have been a lot easier hitting off you. Maybe if I wasn't looking for that changeup all the time. Sometimes it's better to be dumb. Just go up there dead red and maybe you'll get one to hit. But I'll tell you, the psyche, when you miss a pitch by that that much, it really affects the rest of your game. Like, oh, don't let them do that to you again. Boom, take a fastball. Now, all of a sudden, you're down 0-2. And uh, it's, I could talk about this for – I don't even want to talk about it. I, that's the one thing uh, I don't you know, miss about I, I the game. Say, I, make, I don't Brett, miss it. I, I will say this. I, I will say this, though, Brett, is you're right. I couldn't, I couldn't hit very good. And yet you, you were better than was, you were better than you, be, you talk about, though. But what I, what it did for me is I always felt like I could figure out what a guy was kind of thinking in the batter's box. And that that benefited me throughout my career. So I kind of could sense when a guy just felt like he was on something or he was looking for something. And I, I kind of put myself in that situation of, you know, the desperation feel then you know what? It's just paying attention. You, you have all these scouting reports. You have hot zone, cold zone, you know, what the guy's doing in certain counts and where base runners are at. You have the shift. Like, there's a lot to be learned, like what, how a guy took a pitch, how he swung at a pitch, um, where he fouled it off, where he, you know, looked, felt like he made, was almost making contact, that sort of thing. You can learn a lot by just paying attention to what the pitch does. Yeah, that's a great point, too. Uh we're going to talk a little bit about um, playing the game in your career and, and your brother, Glenn, who's been in the game, man, it seems like it's 40 years now. I, I played against, <laughs> you know, uh, dad when he managed the Cincinnati Reds. You know, I played with uh, Aaron. We call him Uncle Aaron now. That's what the kids call him. <laughs> I played with Aaron. I played against 
Aaron, uh, for me, it was never a big deal. I didn't worry about dad and the other Doug. And I, I wanted to kick his butt. I didn't worry about Aaron. I didn't care. I had a job to do. Did When you came into a game and Glenn was coaching third, it, was it surreal for you or was it just, it's no big deal. Glenn's been, me and Glenn have been around each other our whole life. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it, you know, you have a job to do and that kind of supersedes in the moment, you know, what am I going to do? Say hi, you know, hey, hey, bro, or something like that as you go by when, you know, maybe that's something he would want to try and do to just kind of get you off kilter a little bit. But you're right. Like you have you have conversations with your brother all the time. Why in that situation would I want to do it? And so um, you're aware of where he's at and what he's trying to do. Uh, he was a manager for a short time with the Dodgers in 98 when the pods ended up uh, winning the division and going to the World Series. Um and we had fun after the season talking about some stuff, but uh, yeah, you know, you talk about being in the game a long time. He's, you know, 2020 this past year made six decades for him uh, having signed in the, uh, in the seventies. So I uh, played a long time. He coached a long time. Uh, I learned a lot from my brother and uh, I, I know you learned a ton from your family and it, it's smart because you can only experience so much uh, on your own. And yet you can learn so much from the people around you and especially family. Yeah, Glenn, uh, I love, I love Glenn Hoffman. I, I love Glenn. And every time I get to see him in a golf event, where it is, I just always enjoy your brother. All right, let's get to the, the, the funnest part, the meat of this story, what everybody wants here, our travel ball stories. <laughs> uh, let me set this, let me set this up for the audience. Trevor and myself, uh, I retired a little earlier than Trevor, but when he retired, we decided to take on this travel ball where we had a uh, we had Trevor was the first base coach. I was the third base coach. We had a manager who who was tremendous. He handled the parents and the emails and it was a perfect world and it was free for the kids. And and Trevor and myself talked about it. I said, yeah, this will be fun. And our, our sons, uh, Jake and Wyatt at the time. Uh, and when, when do you think we started? We're nine or 10 years old. Yeah, somewhere in that age age demographic, I think. But we we logged three or four or five years uh, doing this travel ball, and and I remember, you know, I still tell people today when when we talk about travel ball and, and people that have young kids, I said, yeah, me and Hoffy did it for a while, and I said at the beginning we thought we were going to be this super team, and and all of a sudden <laughs> players started coming to our team, and I'm thinking, you know, I wasn't thinking to myself, I'm like, they got Trevor Hoffman coaching first. Myself, coach, and third, we've probably logged, you know, 35 years in the big leagues. It's a free program. Our head coach is a, a <laughs> tremendous guy, bends over backwards. And we've got these, these elite uh, travel ball kids coming to the team. And if they're not hitting third, fourth, and pitching every game, they just jump ship. And I remember you looking at me and going, Booney, what, what are we doing wrong? Why, why do these players keep leaving us? And I go, I don't know. They must be crazy. Don't they know how much we can teach them? But, uh, I, man, those are some fun times. What, what do you remember about that? It was, it was definitely a good time. You couldn't have hit the nail on the head more. Um, I, I, w- I would. I would shake my head. I'm like, what more <laughs> can we offer, you know, to keep a kid on our team for a month or so? And, and you're like, How about a week? If they're not in, they're, they're gone. Um, you know, let alone, you're right, some of the information they're going to get. And, you know, the, 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 the kids that were really paying attention and figured out, they were 
they would ask the right questions and they, they were learning. They were getting stuff that, you know, people that lived it in the big leagues and, and they were getting that information. But, uh, man, it, it, it just kind of went to show you that, hey, I appreciate you, coach. You know, you had a nice <laughs> career. But whatever. How, how are you going to help me out? <laughs> and, I, and, and I respect and, that to a degree, too. And, and how did uh... – you know, and how could they miss Brett Boone batting practice? My BP was tremendous. <laughs> oh my gosh! They, yeah, you 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 had you had a unique way of doing some BP, buddy. And uh, uh, guys, guys got to track the ball really nice. <laughs> I yeah, I had the uh, I had the yips. Uh, long story short, what happened in the end was we really started recruiting parents, not kids. And, and we ended up having a great time and we were, we weren't always the best team, but if we, everything went right and all the kids played up to their potential, we had a chance to be there in the end at each and every tournament, but we ended up recruiting parents that were on board with the program and and were just good people. Uh, Man, that was a lot of fun. And, and that's something we'll be able to talk about forever. All right. Yeah, that was that was that was real. Uh, end of the day, the kids really enjoyed one another. The parents were solid, and and you know you you hit it right there. That that allowed for some mishaps that would happen. That would allow for the camaraderie to be real. And I think that the true joy of the game was it was enhanced in that it wasn't about W's. It was about the experience. And when you did roll into a pretty good tournament or some games, it, it all the all was right in the world. So it uh, it had its moments where it was real, real rewarding, and um, I think the kids ultimately had a, a really good time. Yeah. Let's skip over to the uh, you got you got inducted in the Hall of Fame a few years ago. I had a chance to go. Pretty cool experience uh, for people that have never been to the Hall of Fame. I thought it was just guys on a podium, but it, it's kind of like Woodstock there. And uh, it was a really <laughs> cool, it was a really cool experience. And, and I got to see Trev, you know, do his acceptance speech. I kind of was around. I wasn't bugging you at the time. Uh, you were right in the speech. I remember talking to you on the beach and you said, yeah, I'm really prepared for it. And it, it ended up being a real classy event and and it was a lot of fun but i know leading up to that uh you know i know a lot of the friends around you uh what we were thinking when when that you know when the vote was coming in and and we thought no trev's in it's automatic he gets in this year i mean i I remember saying to you hoffy you they cannot have a trevor hoffman award for the outstanding reliever in major league baseball and you not be in the hall of fame but that's that's one thing your buddies, you know, giving you that confidence before you actually get the call. Tell me a little bit what that was like on the family side and with the kids and, and everything leading up to it. I'm, I'm probably and I'm just guessing here. I'm probably you're thinking, well, people are telling me I'm going to get in this time. But I know when you're the person waiting for the call, you don't believe what your buddies tell you. So tell me what was that like when, when you finally got the well-deserved call? <laughs> a lot a lot went into that that's for sure um it's interesting being able to get in on the third ballot was just as glorious as it would have been had it been the first ballot and in all honesty i think back to that first year um we were at a golf tournament together and if it was going to happen i was going to be nowhere near a phone and i just didn't anticipate 
you know, it, it, it going my way. And it, it, I started out with a pretty good number in the 50s percent. And the next year, we just missed it by 1%. And so I kind of felt we could make up, you know, 1% and get that call. And so it was an opportunity where, okay, I, I got, I kind of got to be, I got to do right by this. I got to make sure I'm home. I got to, you know, get my family together. And my mom wanted to get any younger. And so even if I didn't go in, at least we would have an opportunity to celebrate with her that, Hey, if it does happen, you're not with us. I just want you to know we're thinking about you type of thing. And it worked out well, you know, to have family and friends around, um, to have you documented by the Padres. They, they just did such a great job just kind of blending into the wallpaper. Um, and you didn't really see cameras and to have that sort of thing documented was fantastic. But until, until that call really comes in, you, you just, you're, you're not, you're not quite sure if it's going to happen. And so, um, there's always that, that, you know, play it, play it pretty close to the vest until, you know, that, that phone does ring. And when Jack O'Connell of the baseball writers association did call, it was a ton of relief. It was excitement. It was kind of your whole career flashing before your eyes in about two, three seconds, the emotions hit you, you're trying to keep it together. And then ultimately the, the planning starts and you know, you're, you're whisked away, you know, after about 15 minutes, you, you have a presser at the field at Petco, we did it. And then you're on a red eye back to New York for uh, the press conference that the, the hall holds in New York city. So it, uh, it happens. Everything, when the call comes in, everything starts to happen really fast and then it slows down. You got about five months to kind of put thoughts together and figure out what you're, what you're going to try and say and who you're going to thank. And, um, it, it's, it, it, it's really cool. It was a great experience. All right. You mentioned earlier and, and not everybody probably knows this, but, uh, Trevor was not always a pitcher. Matter of fact, uh, we played against each other. I was at USC. He was at that, that villain school, university of Arizona. <laughs> and I remember Trevor coming in, he, he transferred from a JC and I remember watching him. He's a good player. And, uh, he played short and played third. And I remember everybody was always known as frickin' Hoffman's got a cannon. Uh, so you go off, you get drafted. And I think you were there. You were U of A for one year, right? Two years. I was, I was able to do oh, my two years. Year, yeah, senior year. Yep. Oh, I'm but I that. left. Right. You left your junior year. I left my senior year. Okay. So you, you sign, you go to the minor leagues. What happens next? How does, how does Trevor, the all pack six, third baseman shortstop turn into Trevor Hall of Fame closer. How'd it happen? What, what they did is they stuck a wood bat in my hand and I had no idea how to use it. I was, <laughs> I was used to that big sweet spot. That, hey, if, and this was one of the things we told our kids that we, we were coaching. It was like, hey, until you have to use it, man, use that, you know, <laughs> keep using that aluminum bat. <laughs> they all wanted yep. the wood. They all wanted to hit, and you know, to their credit, they know how to use a wood bat and that's something that I didn't learn to do in minor leagues. And um, the slider ate me up and I, I spent, uh, gosh, a full season, half season and a full season trying to make a go of it in, in the infield. And uh, that, that good arm that you mentioned that I was relying on, uh, they decided Jimmy Lett was my manager at A-Ball. And he went to Chief Bender, the scouting director at, uh, with the Reds, and said, hey, this guy's uh, not going to cut it in the infield for anybody, but he's got a pretty good arm. Let's at least take a look at it on the mound before we let him go. And, you know, long story short, it ended up working out and I actually made it to double A the next year 
uh, in pro ball, and that's why I ran into you in Jacksonville. You were in the Mariners system, I think, at the time. And yep. uh, we played each other in, in double A as well. And, yeah, our, our, our careers have kind of mirrored one another all the way through from high school kind of all the way to the till we retired. Greatest hitter you ever faced? Uh, greatest hitter. Statistically against me, Todd Helton owned me. Um, I, I, I mean, cl- close to a 500 average, but uh, the guy that could could really make adjustments um, within at-bats, like, you know, you talk about making adjustments at-bat to at-bat, he would make adjustments pitch to pitch, and that was, that was Barry Bonds. His ability to waste good pitches, his ability to get one good pitch in an at-bat to, to, sit, to hit and hit it really hard. Um, he didn't really have any holes. You couldn't, you couldn't get him out in front on the changeup very easily. You couldn't have, you didn't have enough gas to get it by him and you really couldn't get in on him. I mean, he just, he'd open up his, his front hip and his, you know, his swing would start with a plane that you just couldn't beat him inside. And so, um, he, he was, he was probably the, the, the best hitter, um, that I faced. Yeah, and I think that's kind of universal from from the guys of our generation. It's just I, I know as a position player sitting out there, and and you know you're out there, and you, you may be having a year where you're having a great year, and Barry walks to the plate, and <laughs> you just go, well, this is like a different world. It, it's almost like he was playing, and I say this all the time. It's almost like Barry was playing slow pitch softball, and the rest of us were playing in the big leagues. It, it was that night and day. So. So yeah, I I, I suspected you you probably had a highly high opinion of him as a hitter, but I just wanted to confirm it. Um, Hoffy, the one thing that that not only your friends but but your peers, the guys that that were there for your you know fifteen plus year career, uh, Trevor Trevor was always really highly respected, and and. You know, I, I think the numbers, the saves, the Hall of Fame, that goes without saying. But it was for more than that. It was it was how you carried yourself. It was how you behaved. I, I think you epitomized. You know, I, I grew up and, and the one thing I, I watched my father and I said, you know, he epitomizes what a professional is, how he goes to work, how he behaves, how he treats other people. And Trevor, you were one of those guys, always a first class guy the way you were on the field, you're save, you're setting records in the save category, but at the same time, you're getting the third out. The catcher hands you the ball. You shake, you shake his hand and you go into the dugout. You never were one. And you still don't to this day, like, and crave the attention. And, and I just wonder, was that your upbringing? Is that something you learned as a young man? Or is that just the way you are? Cause, because it was, you know, in a, and I think there's nothing wrong with with celebrations or guys that are a little bit more flamboyant. That's their, you know, that's just how they're built. But it was always refreshing to watch you, even though you were my buddy and, and you were usually getting us out at the end of the game. Like, look at Hoffy. He's just he's just that consummate pro. Is that is that something you learned growing up? Was that what your parents instilled in you, or is that just the way you are? Honestly, it was a little bit of a, a combination of things. I. I had great role models in my parents. Um, my dad worked his tail off in the post office for 30 years. And before that, he was a professional singer and traveled the world and, and really had the, the world by the tail. Um, my mom and he met um, when he was singing in a play and she was dancing. And so 
Um, they're, they're artsy. They, they had, uh, luxury we'll say. And, and yet when they raised a family, it was kind of humble pie. And so I was able to see that difference. Um, I got a chance to see how my older brother went about being a very successful local amateur player and turn into a professional career and how he handled himself. Um, my oldest brother, uh, being a, a basketball coach in Orange County, demanded respect. He was hard, hard-nosed um, disciplinarian. And there was certain things you did and didn't do on the field of play. Uh, and I also think I learned from humble pie. I think, you know, you, we mentioned my lack of prowess at the plate. You know, I was able to get signed as an infielder, but that, that journey ran out and it was hard to fail. It was hard to uh, deal with adversity that you didn't have an answer for. And so I respected that. And when I was able to transition to the mound and I started to have success, I always in the back of my mind was, Hey man, don't, don't believe in your press clippings that, you know, humble pie is right around the corner and you don't, you don't want to go through that again. And so it was always kind of put the brow of your hat down. It was go about doing your work and be thankful and move on to the next day. And I think all those factors really played into respecting the game, respecting your opponent. And trust me, I wasn't always so, as you know, I'd have as much fun as anybody in a clubhouse. And I think that's part of what you have to encompass as a teammate is, you know, look for ways of keeping things loose, look for ways to pick guys up that might be struggling and find fun in the game. I mean, that's why you're doing it. It is a job. And um, if it becomes a job, then you're not, you're not going about it the right way. You want to, be a kid that gets to play that game at 40 years old, you're putting on a baseball uniform. That's pretty cool stuff. So uh, I appreciate it. But yeah, I think it was a lot of factors that went into, you know, what type of player I was. And talking retirement, you know, you retired a few years back. I I retired a few years before you. Uh, I know what I don't miss. I don't miss chasing a slider low and away in the dirt. I don't miss that. What What do you miss about the game? I miss the clubhouse. Uh, I miss that, uh, that uniqueness that you're going to only have if you're a part of a team. Um, being involved with the Padres still today, it, it's great. I get to go in the locker room, um, chat it up with, with the guys that are there. We talk the game a little bit, but I'm not on that inner circle. And that trust that you get by being a teammate, that, that ability to, you know, put on that uniform and go out and compete at seven o'clock every night allows you that camaraderie. Um, and that goes away. And that, that's something that I miss being at the field doing. I miss, um, I, I miss being at 35,000 feet in the air and being able to unplug from, you know, your iPhones and the internet or whatever. And you just kind of enjoy hanging out with your teammates, playing cards or listening to music and, and flying to the next destination or coming home. Um, I miss that sort of thing uh, to share with people. Yeah. And that's a, that's a pretty accurate point too, is you, you mentioned you, you never know what it's like. Once we take that uniform off and are officially retired, we're kind of out of that inner circle, you know, and everybody thinks, well, well, Trev's working for the Padres. He's down in with the guys. It's different. It's you only, if you're, part of that 25 man roster. You're the only guys that really know what's going on 
the real story of what's going on. And once once we take off that uniform the final time, it's like, no, we're still a part of that and, and we'll always be a part of that the game but you're right it, it, it's a different you're, you're not in the inner I think you put it great you're not in the inner circle and talking about the Padres you, you work for the Padres now I know you do a lot of PR for them but you're also you put a uni on in spring training what's what's some of the most rewarding stuff you get to do now working with young players what, what's the most rewarding thing for Trevor yeah I've been pretty lucky um that they've one asked me to come back and two I've I've been welcomed back by, you know, my longtime pitching coach, Darren Balsley at the time. And this past year with Larry Rothschild, who was in the red system um, at the time I was coming up and making the transition. So I have a lot of longtime history with some guys that are running the show there. And I, I really appreciate them giving me that opportunity to be in spring training, you know, to have the, the latitude to have conversations with their pitching staff and their guys. Um, but what I get most rewarded by is when, when I see kind of a light bulb go off in a young kid, whether it's, we talk about what we earlier in the, in the podcast, you know, you, what was so important about my changeup? Well, it was, it was strike one. It was locating a fastball so I could get to it. And then, you know, you talk to another guy about a changeup and you see the, the, the way that clicks on and how, um, that just something feels right in their hand when you talk about a grip. And so it, uh, it's those type of things where you're able to pass your knowledge on, you know, it's appreciated and understand that's kind of the best way to help out is, is by giving up your knowledge that you have on certain things. All right. And, and uh, we got to play together one year, 2000, the Padres. And, um, you know, I mentioned it earlier. I don't like being friends with pitchers. I have a lot of ex ex teammates that were pitchers that are my buddies and I didn't like it because I didn't like when I had to face them. But we really, as position players, Trev, you know, we don't really pay attention to you guys much. You have a job to do. We have a job to do, (laughs) But, but tell, tell the people out there listening once that national anthem finishes and we take the field, you were in a real unique situation being a closer. And, and especially at the time, you knew if your team was ahead, you're, you're getting the call for the ninth inning. Once that na- anthem finished, what'd you do? How did you prepare? Yeah. For, and, so, and sometimes you weren't going to pitch for two or three days. You might go two, three, four days in a row without pitching. How did you stay in the game ready to do the job you had to do? Well, I think um... – you, you, you're right. It, it, it's something where you could go three or four days without getting into a, a game that um, is what you do in a save. Um, in all honesty, you can't fall into that trap of just, oh, I'm going to flip it on when, you know, I'm, I get the pitch in a safe situation. You have to anticipate um, every night you could go in. And so, you know, you're right. The national anthem plays. Uh, I've done a lot of work prior to that for the physicality of trying to get the body right, whether it was some running, whether it was some arm weights, whether it was core work. Um, and then I would do some things with the trainers early, but it was also my time to kind of get out of the train room because you guys needed that time with the trainers so that you guys could be ready at 7.05 where I'm not going to go in for another two, three hours after that. So I would utilize um, the time when the game was going on in a couple innings to get myself right. So I wasn't taking any time away from anybody. And, um, but from the time the game starts, it was a couple innings of banter with the guys in the bullpen. 
Uh, as you mentioned, having the luxury of knowing I was going to go into the ninth inning, you know, I didn't have the stress of worrying about that phone ringing if things went crazy in the third or fourth inning. It was, you know, going to be someone else's uh, name going to get called. And so you kind of you pick your spots, and when you, you're chit-chatting a little bit, you're always paying attention to the game and uh, try and get guys right for when they might go in. But uh, uh, you're right. It's, it's a situation where you kind of see the game leading up where there's going to be an opportunity. You start mentally getting focused. You, you have a chance where you see the uh, you see the last at bat before you go in and basically gauge what you're going to do when, when the phone does ring and they tell you to get up. So it, uh, it was a long process, but it was something where you definitely don't take for granted that you're not going in because that's really ultimately when you could kind of get hung up. All right. Well, I'll, I'm going to speak for all hitters out there. I, I, we know what it means to us, but uh, two words. What does it mean to you? Hell's bells. <laughs> uh, you know, and, uh, and by the coolest walk up. So, you know, in the day and age of everybody's got a walk up song, uh, that's going to be a classic. <laughs> one of the first and one of the best. All right. Go ahead. <laughs> great, great, great theatrics, I'll, I'll say. Uh, it was a song by ACDC that, you know, I didn't think much of when we started it in 98, and it became larger in life and actually took on a mind of its own and a, a culture uh, of its own here in San Diego. Um, you know, I'm synonymous with it to a degree down here, but, uh, you know, I get a kick out of it when I hear you know, the hell the bells go off on a third and long situation in an NFL stadium. And I, I giggle when I hear it in other places, but uh, I know that for a moment in time in San Diego, I was playing it meant the ninth inning was getting ready to start. And I could always rely on that charge. You know, that the, the bullpen gate would open up at Petco and I'd turn and run from Qualcomm without a gate. And when that first bell would go off, it, it was on fans got excited. They, they got loud. They enjoyed the lead guitar for a little bit. They enjoyed the first few uh, uh, lyrics. Uh, and then it was, and then the game started, you know, we, we went to back to the, 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 the theatrics are over with and we got to play a baseball game. And I would, I would hope that it allowed me to one, I could always rely on that charge to get that energy, but I was hoping it would also amp up the hitter to the point where I could get away with, you know, sneaking a 72 mile an hour change up in there and then being a little bit too aggressive and utilize, utilize that pitch to my advantage. So it, uh, it was a lot of fun when, when Hell's Bells cranked. And I'll tell the guy, we, we went to, uh, so, so we're playing at old Qualcomm this 2000 and Trevor, myself and, and a couple, I think Nevin and, uh, Klesko maybe we have a night game at Qualcomm and ACDC's playing. And we got to get out of there. So we, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the final outs made, I don't even think we shower. We get to the ACDC concert. We're in the front row. And ACDC, by the way, one of my favorite bands of all time, obviously one of Trevor's. But uh, I, I tell you, for, for a, a moment that had nothing to do with me, it was one of the cool, coolest moments I ever had at an event so we're in San Diego. So obviously it's Hoffie's song. And Angus Young, who the guitarist for ACDC, comes out. He's got Trevor's jersey on. And the bells start ringing. And the camera goes on our group, you know, mostly Trevor. 
and the crowd erupts. And, and like I said, for not, it had nothing to do with me. It was one of the coolest moments I've ever had at an event, let alone a concert. But, uh, yeah, I remember. I still remember. I still talk about that when when Hell's Bells comes up or anything. That 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 was pretty cool. All right. Uh, thanks a lot, man. This this was a cool podcast. I think everybody's going to love it. What we do on the Boot Podcast at the end is the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, comes in with a uh, question or two from the fans. Dan, Hi, Trevor. are you there? I am Standing here. Standing by. I am here. I am here. <laughs> Actually, he did the, the wind out of my sails a little bit because I was going to ask you about the Hell's Bells, but I... I think I read a story that you didn't actually come up with that song. That song was just given to you, and it it stuck. Is that true? It is true. It, uh, it was actually... Steve Finley went to Charles Steinberg, our uh, one, of the, one of the guys in our front office, and when Steve was in Baltimore... He goes, Charles, we, we, had a, we had a song for Oli, Greg Olson, when he came in. How come we don't have a song for Hoppy? And Charles took it to heart, and he sent his entertainment division out to figure it out what they were going to do. And a guy by the name of Chip Bowers, uh, I think it's still in professional sports in some capacity with an organization, uh, came down with ACDC's Hell's Bells. And I said, yeah, I, you know, I'm not really partial to any particular song. Uh, let's give it a shot. And after the the first, I mean, it kind of freaked out the, the fans at first. They weren't sure what was happening. And then uh, I wasn't sure on the second time that we used it because uh, Moise Alude, who I struck out the night before, decided to take me deep on the first pitch fastball that I threw. And I'm like, uh-oh, that wasn't very cool. You come out to this song and everyone's cheering for you. And the next pitch, you give it up and the game's tied. That doesn't go over very well. And so, uh, fortunately, we stuck with it, and uh, we had a nice run uh, playing Hell's Bells in San Diego. All right. Well, Trevor, we want to thank you very much for coming on today's podcast. If you want to go ahead and follow him, he's on Twitter. It's at thoffman51. And if you want to follow Brett Boone, of course, it is at Boone, at the Boone 29 And once again, if you found the podcast, welcome aboard. We have some really cool things lined up. So do us a favor. Keep subscribing, commenting, leave reviews. Tell all your friends and family that this podcast is, in fact, Boone approved. And for the Silver Slugger, the Golden Glover, and All-Star, Brett Boone, I'm Dan Levy. Chat with you guys next week. Stay safe. Talk to you guys soon.